And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 22nd. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. On this episode, we are going to focus on ADP risers and fallers. And to do that, we are going to take a look at NFBC ADP data, and the method we are going to use today is I have built a giant spreadsheet, shocker, and we're going to take a look at biggest movers from February ADPs to March ADPs with the hope of capturing a lot of more recent adjustments that the market is making to players whose situations have improved via trade, via free agency, via positive health news, uh, sometimes via reasons we don't really understand, so we'll try to hash those ones out on the fly. We'll also take a look at players going the other direction, which, as you can imagine, there's a pretty consistent pattern. Most big fallers this time of year are players that are hurt, right? We got some bad injury news, and adjusting values is a big part of just correcting for those injuries, but there's some exceptions to that side, too, and that might create a few interesting opportunities to get players at a slight discount. Uh, Before we plunge into our conversation at the ADP risers and fallers, I just want to ask, Al, how much does what's happening in the ADP market influence you as you go about your your draft prep? Like, How important is the information in the broader sense? How do you like to use ADP as you go through everything you do throughout the winter and into the spring? Well, for me, it's just uh, a, a reality check because there's there's certain players uh, that I like or you know those that I'm not as, as interested in, but especially for those that I might be inclined to reach for, uh, it's really important for me to reference ADP to make sure that I don't reach too far to get them. So I'd say that's the main way uh, that I use them. And uh, an exercise like this, where we look at who's rising and who's falling, I mean, that's also just a good way to gauge how other people that I'm drafting with might be responding to news and for me to compare my response uh, and see if, again, you know, maybe somebody who I think is not going to be as hurt uh, or as out for as long by with an injury, if, uh, you know, maybe I, I need to be more pessimistic just so that. I don't take take that player too early. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way to, to look at it. And I, I think I'll, I'll add kind of one thing that I'd like to do as well is I, I just like to kind of error check my process against the market. If something that everybody else is doing is a clear outlier compared to how I initially ranked players, I use that as a reason to further investigate the player. I don't just naturally say, well, I have to move this player up. The market has him here and I have him down here. So I at least got to be closer to where the room is. I don't think that's necessary. I think it is trying to find those those key players, the players that you truly believe in more than the field, because that's, you know, that's the difference between winning and losing sometimes. It's the outliers. It's a game based on having outlier performances on your roster. Um, so I, I kind of use it as a, a an error check as I go through my process. And the movers, I think, are, are interesting because sometimes the market overcorrects. And sometimes it doesn't move enough. So you can see a rising price, and that might get a lot of people to back off, but it might actually be a good time to buy. Added information sometimes doesn't get accounted for as much as it should. In other instances, I think it uh, it leads people to make a decision that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So With that, let's start taking a look at the biggest movers. We're going to start with position players, February ADP to March ADP, just full month of of information from the NFBC. Now, you can filter their reports down by the day. And I think this time of year, especially looking week by week, looking at the last three days is probably a really good indicator of what is likely to happen in your particular draft, right? If you're playing any sort of NFBC league or if you're playing even just a, a league that's not on their platform, getting a sense for how people are treating players 
in the last couple of days is always better than taking the broader view. But we're just looking for big trends and trying to figure out what to make of, of these bigger risers. The biggest riser among position players in the top 400, if you look at the ADP number, the big the big number, as we'll call it, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. I didn't expect to see that until I started to think about why. It's two things. It's not just the trade that eventually got him to the Yankees, two trades that made that happen. It was the Josh Young injury that happened in Texas originally. With Young missing a lot of time, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa was going to have a clear path to everyday playing time again for the first couple months of the season, even without a trade that moved him elsewhere. And as we've seen, he's the kind of player that, while I, I've never believed in more power developing, at least I've, I've been very skeptical of that happening, he did, he plays great defense, and he's shown us that with playing time, he runs. So it's, it's cheap speed, and it comes from a player that, uh, I think you know, going into a more hitter-friendly environment might be able to unlock a little bit more of the power that people have been hoping for in the past when targeting him as a late option for their rosters. You know, I really I hadn't considered the park factor aspect with Kiner Falefa because he has so little raw power that that just wasn't really on my radar as something to look at. But yeah, we've seen that with Yankees hitters that don't necessarily light up the Statcast leaderboards, but put up some pretty good splits at home and also have some pretty good parks to to go to in the AL East. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And obviously the 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 lineup factors are the ones that I figured were driving up his his ADP. And it, it makes sense for the most part, except I think that in Texas, he would have had a, a much greater opportunity to hit at the top of the lineup or near the top of the lineup than he obviously does in the Yankees lineup. So when you look at who is surrounding Kiner Falefa in the Yankees lineup. Maybe there's some runs scored uh, when the when the lineup wraps around and you've got the top of the order coming up. But uh, I, I know you're you talked about this an episode episode or two ago DVR that uh, you're you're um, optimistic about Eric Hicks this this season or at least you think he's a a, a good draft target. But uh, the bottom third of that lineup right now is projected by roster resource would be Hicks, Kiner Falefa, and then uh, the catcher that came over in that um, that trade with the Twins, um, Bet Rorvet. So that's obviously you compare that to the top of the Rangers lineup, and and it doesn't. I don't think it really stacks up favorably. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to see Kiner Falefa hitting higher than seventh when everyone's healthy and. Even that might be a little bit of a stretch, but being in the bottom third of a lineup that might be top five league wide could be good enough to drive that value up to a level, maybe just a tick above where it's been in the past. Now, if they find a way to make a trade for uh, an upgrade at shortstop, I don't even know who that would be at this point, but if they found a way to pull that off, that he could go back into that utility role and we'd see another drop. But I was a little surprised to see him as the biggest riser among position players. Again, filtering down to the top 400 range just to keep the very, very late players out. The draft and hold players are, are not part of this conversation. How about Nick Senzel jumping up? 28 spots. That's a pretty good move. And we're talking about guys that are moving basically around in a 15-team league or more. Nick Senzel, I think because of the changes that have happened in Cincinnati, uh, the mini teardown, we'll call it, is probably going to play a lot. If you look at that depth chart and you look at everybody in that outfield, how is he not the the maximum volume center fielder health permitting, right? Like who's really going to push him for time in their current core of outfielders? Yeah, I, I think that, again, it would be have, have to be probably health issues that would keep him from compiling a lot of plate appearances. So, there, you know, there's something there. It's definitely a, a bit of an upside play because he hasn't really done much either last season or the, the year before in the short season. But that rookie year, uh, 12 homers, 14 stolen bases, uh, I think that's probably what people are hoping that uh, Senzel can get close to. But, yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of an upside play uh, with a, not a ton of risk because of where he's going, but... Uh, that risk goes up maybe a little bit now with him rising up at the, the ADP rankings. It was such a, a small sample for Senzel last season. 124 plate appearances, had the knee injury that really limited what he was able to do when he played. But the plate skills were as good as they've ever been. 
a 12.9% strikeout rate last year, a 9.7% walk rate. We've seen him back when he debuted in 2019 carry a good enough barrel rate. 8% is fine. I'll, I'll take an 8% barrel rate from someone that makes that much contact potentially in that ballpark. I think this is just a, a pure health gamble at this point. If you told me you can have Nick Senzel as your fifth outfielder in a 12-team league even, if I'm getting him where he's been going, I'm happy with that because there's a lot of ways it can go right. And I think he's he's discounted enough even with this rise. If it doesn't work out, he's an early season drop and I can find someone with you know, better health or a slightly larger role if the Reds decide to mix and match at that position. But the more I've looked at that depth chart, the more I have convinced myself that it is only health that can derail Nick Senzel at this point. His underlying skills are quietly improving. How about Ha-Seung Kim in San Diego, up 25 spots as well? This is clearly the result of the Tatis injury news. The, the wrist surgery that Tatis had is going to cause him to probably miss at least the first two months of the season based on the timetables that we're seeing. So it's probably going to be a two-month window for Kim to be, if not an everyday player, very close to it. I'm just curious if you saw anything in the profile last year from Kim that would lead you to believe that you should take a chance on him as a roster filler as we kind of look at the bottom few rounds of our drafts here in 2022. You know, I don't really see anything in the profile that Kim put up last season, and I was a bit surprised really to see Kim go up as much as he has gone up in ADP because of that. Obviously, yeah, he's got the increased opportunity for the first two, who knows, maybe three months of the season, or maybe he plays well enough to work his way into a utility role or, or some sort of more prominent role when Tatis does return. But I think if there's a reason to to take a gamble on Kim, uh, you know, based on this increased playing time, it's just that I don't feel like he really did get an opportunity last year to make that adjustment from the KBO and to to really get in, into a, a groove and, and adjust adjust to the major leagues. So maybe all that uh, excitement and the potential that we saw this time last year maybe we need to get ourselves back in that mindset and think, okay, he is going to have an opportunity to play every day. It will be for an extended period. And maybe there, there is going to be some of that power speed combination and, and maybe a, a pretty good batting average as well that uh, he can, he can uh, produce given the opportunity to actually see every day at bats. Yeah. I like the versatility. I mean, you're talking about a guy that qualifies at, at three spots. I think that bodes really well just for being a, a good glue guy. Even the more recent ADP sitting just outside that top 300 overall. So not that much of a difference compared to where Sinzel has been going more recently and Kiner Falefa for that matter, even though Falefa goes the earliest of the bunch. So I see kind of a similar profile to Kiner Falefa in a lot of ways. I wonder how much Kim is going to run. He was 6-for-7 as a base dealer last year. He was 21-for-23 during his final season in the KBO and 33-for-37 the year before that, back in 2019. And I think the other thing in his profile that catches my eye is that his ground ball rate, his last year in the KBO, was 48.2%. In his big league debut, 41.4%. So if you look at some of the power numbers he was putting up overseas, you look at the lack of power from him in his first year, I think you can start to look at that and say, yeah, maybe it's not big-time power, but maybe it's more of a high-teens, low-20s sort of, of power base for him over a full season's worth of playing time. And if he plays well in Tatis's absence and anybody else is hurt, his versatility gives him a chance to stick in that lineup. And I think there's also a lot of questions right now with Eric Hosmer and how much the Padres are going to play him. They're getting more crowded between first base and the new DH spot in the NL because of the trade for Luke Voigt. And what we've seen, Eric Hosmer, spoiler, is one of the biggest fallers that we've seen among position players so far. I think it's actually kind of an overcorrection in a lot of ways where Hosmer is probably going to play a lot to begin the season. But I think we're also at a point where a team like the Padres can't afford to have a below replacement level player getting regular playing time. So even if they're not going to boot him off the roster, if they're going to use him more as a, a left-handed bat, bat off the bench, they're still going to see in the first couple months if Eric Hosmer has anything to offer. So that could be the other path for Kim, right? If you end up playing Hosmer less when Tatis comes back, maybe Jake Cronenworth becomes the primary first baseman. You keep Void as your DH, and you end up playing Kim more as your second baseman at that time. 
there's a number of ways that that could play out. And that's, that's definitely one of them. And even if Kim doesn't make the most out of this uh, initial trial that, that he's going to get into Tisa's absence, uh, there's you know, still a lot of catchers uh, in this depth chart. And Victor Caratini could play some first base. So that's that's a potential solution there. Or maybe Jorge Alfaro gets in that mix uh, with that you've got moving parts where he can play the outfield or he could be behind the plate or you know maybe DH and with Voight moving to first. So there's I think there's good reasons between the the decline in performance and the way that this depth chart is structured to just not see the point in bothering with Eric Hosmer. Yeah, I understand that for sure in shallow <laughs> leagues. I do think in, in draft and holds, I think in, in mono league situations, the the market has overcorrected in those very deep formats where it's really just about getting playing time at all. I think he'll play enough to be useful in the deepest of deep leagues, even if I don't have enough faith in his skills to make an impact in a more shallow mixed league format. How about Seiya Suzuki, up about 22 picks from where he was in February. He's got a team. I don't know if there was any real doubt about him coming over. I know his his situation as a free agent was just kind of on pause during the lockout like everybody else's. So I guess there was always that possibility that he would change his mind and say, well, I'm not waiting and waiting and dealing with this. But he's up almost a round and a half, almost two rounds, actually. He's a cub. I can't imagine they're going to play him much less than every day. Like 95% of the playing time in one of the outfield spots should be his. There's power, there's speed. I mean, what do you make of Suzuki? Do you think he's appropriately valued, undervalued, or overvalued where he's been going with this bump? I think appropriately valued. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right about the playing time for Suzuki. And you look at that Cubs lineup and figure that he's you know, going to be somewhere in the middle of it. So even though uh, that's not an offense that I think many people are, are really going to fear that being in the middle of just about any lineup is, is going to provide you with some value. And I think that, you know, just that alone puts him now in terms of ADP, it puts him in an appropriate place as with you know, any player coming, coming from overseas. It's a little hard to know how those uh, stats are going to translate. I always take sort of a conservative approach to that, uh, but you, you look at the the projections DVR and they're they're as you might expect they're they're a little bit all over the map. Mm-hmm. So uh, ATC's got Suzuki with 22 home runs and, and seven steals and to uh, 268 projected batting average. Uh, Derek Cardi, the bad X, that's um, 19 home runs, nine steals, 251 average. So I probably would lean more towards the bad X and, and those projections just to play it safe. And yeah, he's with with uh, that kind of power uh, stolen base combination. You're just going to have to need Suzuki to to just produce some runs to validate the the ADP. I wouldn't really want to go much higher than where he's been going. He's been going around pick 150 if you look at the last three days worth of ADP. So even more of a jump because he used to be a fringy top 200 guy. There were some drafts where he'd go outside of that range, and I think the one time I've drafted him so far this draft season was probably yeah it was probably like January it was a while ago so we really still had no idea beyond maybe like four final suitors for Suzuki like where he might go and I was just basing it on any expectation of him coming over was based on a ton of playing time once he got here I think you're right to take a, a more conservative approach and I think the thing that the projections might be a little light on even if you want to take that 251 338 439 you know, high teens power, high single digit stolen base total, I'd probably bump him up with the runs and RBIs because I, I think he controls the strike zone really well. It's a Cubs team. It's going to have to find ways to score runs. It just, it's certainly not impossible that if he struggles that they would give him occasional days off and just try to get him acclimated to big league pitching. But he's 27 years old. He's done it for a long time at a high level in Japan. I have to think that they're going to err on the side of letting him push through it if he runs into a prolonged slump. So I think the playing time might be a little bit light for Suzuki. Around pick 150, though, the decision you're going to end up making is Trent Grisham versus Seiya Suzuki. I mean, that, that's power, speed, probably less batting average potential from Grisham, but at least we've we've seen what he can do at this level before. So it's kind of just a known versus an unknown with somewhat similar projections. The Suzuki ATC projection, by the way, 
doesn't look all that different than Christian Yelich's projection. And Yelich goes about 50 picks earlier because we still have some hope out there in the draft community that he might get back to a level closer to where he was before he followed that ball off his knee a couple years ago. And you figure that that upside's going to be much, much higher than whatever upside that we would project for Suzuki. So that that 50-pick discrepancy makes a lot of sense to me. As a toss-up, though, are you Grisham or are you Suzuki if you're looking for an outfielder in that range? I am going for Grisham, just a bias towards the known. So uh, and I think there's a little bit of upside for Grisham, too, above and beyond what, what's projected for him. So I would go Grisham, but I think that, that that's just proof to me that Suzuki is really being drafted appropriately because that's not an easy decision to make. And if you go a little bit further down, uh, Hunter Renfro, Adolis Garcias, Akil Badu, I mean, that's that to me feels like the exact right neighborhood. Yeah, that feels fair to me. I, I like Suzuki more than the guys that are going behind him right now. And I think uh, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. versus Suzuki, also a fair toss-up. And I think Gurriel's going a yeah, half dozen or so spots ahead of Suzuki right now. A couple other movers uh, in the positive direction on the position player side. Max Muncy, just generally good health news on him. I think the only question I have with Max Muncy is, are you worried about his playing time in the early part of the season because of his elbow injury and because of the addition of Freddie Freeman, right? You have Freeman playing every day or almost every day. That's one really good bat that plays one of the spots that Muncy plays and doesn't really play anywhere else. Does that lower your expectations volume-wise for Muncy early on or even throughout the entire season? Uh, it hasn't It hasn't until now, DVR. <laughs> so, uh, But I do think that it, it's this is a, a situation that's really worth watching pretty closely in spring training because Muncy just made his debut, made two plate appearances. Uh, he walked. Uh, that was the only uh, time he got on base out of the two plate appearances. So, yeah, if he's being taken out early, if he's being eased in particularly slowly, uh, I that is something that would make me a little bit nervous uh, in, in upcoming drafts. I'm not. Over the longer haul, you know, thinking ahead across uh, the whole season, thinking later into the year, I haven't been particularly worried about Munsing's playing time as long as he does prove to be healthy. But I want to kind of put an asterisk next to that and say no more than usual, because as as was in the old... uh, the old intro for uh, fancy and 15 Dodgers are going to Dodger mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to, they've got versatile players who could mix and match and, and give each other breathers. So I think we'll see that from Muncie at least as much as we have in the past. I think it's good news. If you have Muncie in a keeper or dynasty situation that he's going to have to play enough second base to qualify there in the future. I mean, so the, there's, there's that, there's that little extra bump, even though he might see a, a considerable amount of his starts this year uh, as the DH. I mean, he might be the guy that leads that team in DH playing time even though they're going to probably move a handful of different guys to that spot, try to rest some of the the stars they have, keep their bats in the lineup without you know putting them on the field for the wear and tear of, of defensive responsibilities. Mookie Betts might be a guy that, even though he's a great defender, might surprisingly DH a little more often as they try to keep that hip healthy over the course of the season. Another Cub on here, Jonathan VR. He wasn't a Cub probably when people were drafting him 20 picks later previously, but I think there's a general question that I was dancing around with Suzuki. It's just how good is this Cubs offense? And, and and within that, you know, what kind of role are you expecting for VR? Is he is he completely replacing Patrick Wisdom at, at third base? I, I was skeptical of Wisdom even without any sort of established veteran brought in to compete with him. And I think straight up, I have a lot more confidence in what VR's offensive profile can bring compared to Wisdom with that 40% K rate a year ago. I don't think uh, VR is going to completely replace Patrick Wisdom. And I, I think that you, because of the, the universal DH that you'll probably see a lot of teams, you know, besides the Dodgers and the NL uh, going to, to mixing and matching uh, now that they've got that extra slot. So, uh, you know, I could see VR not only DHing himself maybe or Wisdom doing some uh, DHing, but uh, VR playing some different positions. I was really surprised uh, to look at VR's uh, numbers from last season that he played as much as he did. And maybe this is just because once the season's over, sometimes things become a bit of a blur. But uh, did you remember him getting 505 plate appearances? Uh, because mm-hmm. I did not. But I, I would have guessed on, on the Mets last year, I would have guessed more like 350, 375. Exactly. Like a, a career <laughs> low for him in the last five years would not have surprised me at all. But yeah, you see... 
505 on a, on a good team last year, or a team that had high expectations at least last year. And now that path in, in Chicago seems at least is good. A guy, oh, sure. If he gets 500 again, that doesn't mean he's an everyday guy, but that's enough to work in a lot of deeper mixed leagues. Outside the top 200 in most drafts right now. Could keep creeping up, though, because cheap speed is hard to find. And unlike a lot of other cheap sources of speed, Jonathan VR still has pop. 18 home runs last year in those 505 plate appearances. That was playing half his games in another pitcher-friendly environment. So I, I think he's just one of those guys that there's there's no longer a ceiling like what we saw back in 2019 and of course not like what we saw in 2016 that was the 62 stolen base year I think we're gonna like 10 more years are gonna pass and another generation of fantasy players are gonna be in the room and they're gonna do some searches and they're gonna say what was that Jonathan VR season in 2016 like and we're all gonna have this sort of well the Brewers you know really weren't that good that year and it just sort of came out of nowhere, and then we, everyone was drafting him as a top I think, 30 player the year after that. Pretty wild times. But if you look at him and say, maybe he's more of a 2020 guy if everything clicks, I think you're pretty happy to get a possible 2020 player that plays nearly every day outside of the top 200. Because as I said before, a lot of your 20 steals guys that go in this range, they're more like a Kiner Falefa. There are questions about power. You're going to get six homers or eight homers. It's more like a Rymel Tapia sort of profile. So I, I think VR might creep up even a little bit higher as we move through the final weeks of draft season. Yeah, VR, in my mind, could have easily been the the biggest mover, the biggest upward mover. Uh, I wouldn't have been surprised by that at all because I had avoided him because I didn't know what type of job he would have when he got a job. I didn't really expect that he would land someplace like the Cubs where he could theoretically play really close to every day. And I also just want to point out, too, that last season was the first season in his career where he actually did hit more home runs than steal bases. And so even though he got those 505 plate appearances, stole 14 bases in 21 attempts. So I'm going to say that that does concern me a bit. Maybe it's a blip or we often see with a lot of players who are prolific base stealers that when it tails off, it tails off really fast. And at least you do have the power there as something for VR to fall back on. But. I I would be very, very surprised uh, at a 2020 season from him, even with a lot of playing time. Yeah, sprint speed has dipped just a little bit. He was in the 57th percentile, according to StatCast, in 2021. If you go back to that 2019 season, just as a comparison, he was in the 73rd percentile then. So um, that's where I think my, my 20 steal ceiling is coming from. It is just a player that if he shifts the profile, if it's more power, a little less speed, that's not surprising now that he is on the wrong side of 30. Uh, other quick movers among hitters, Riley Green creeping up a little bit, having a nice spring so far. I think it's easy to take a similar approach to Riley Green that I've been taking with Julio Rodriguez, where if you want to take one prospect in a redraft league, he goes late enough. It makes sense from the, the perspective of the Tigers trying to maximize the quality of that roster as they've got that young wave of talent coming up. Um, so I have no problem at all if you want to make Riley Green that player in place of Julio Rodriguez. I don't know if you can really justify rostering both in a typical redraft format, given that you may have to wait a couple of weeks for both of them to actually make their big league debuts. How about Gary Sanchez and Mitch Garver in the ultimate win-win scenario where both players creep up about 15 picks after being traded uh, in, in that flurry of activity post-lockout. Uh, do you think it is really a win-win scenario? We've talked about it on a few of the shows where it's like Gary Sanchez no longer has the the constant scrutiny about his defense from the New York media uh, as a cloud hanging over him. And, and Mitch Garver ends up in a situation in Texas where maybe there's a path for him to play even a little bit more than there was in Minnesota where Ryan Jeffers was at least a, a very competent backup, though I would say Jonah Heim as a defender is really good already, so perhaps there's some some similarities to the situation Garver ended up in to the one that he was in with the Twins. Yeah, these are both sort of puzzling trends to me because uh, Sanchez going from the Yankees to the Twins, I suppose, yeah, there's the whole change of scenery narrative. Also, I think that there's maybe less of a threat to his playing time. But then again, I you could you could flip this around and say, well, Garver wins because there's there's no contest at all anymore with Ryan Jeffers. So I don't know. It to me it seems like it, it's maybe a lateral move for Sanchez if, at best. And then for Garver, uh, I think he's going to a, a lesser lineup 
he's going to uh, he's certainly not getting a, a ballpark upgrade uh, by going to Texas. That said, I had felt from from the start of draft season that Garver was going way too late. So he's getting a bump. I think he deserves. I'm just not sure this is the the best reason for it. Both up an equal amount in terms of picks, but also there's a 75 pick difference between where they typically go. Garver going a lot earlier than Gary Sanchez right now. I actually think Gary Sanchez, and this was something that came up. I think Keith Law had Joe Sheehan on his podcast last week. I think they might consider DHing Gary Sanchez a bit more than the Yankees could, just as a way to keep his bat in the lineup. And that's another way to ease some of the pressure uh, on him defensively. Uh, they also pointed out, though, that Mitch Garver, when he first came up, was not a good defensive catcher. The Twins instructors did a good job kind of improving him in that facet. So maybe just some new coaches, new people in his ear that could also help change a few things about Gary Sanchez defensively as well. Really curious to see what it looks like for him in Minnesota. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's go to the pitching side of the risers where, of course, Alex Colomay is the biggest riser uh, from February to March ADPs, up more than 100 picks. He is the biggest riser in the top 400 among all players. Not entirely surprising since he is a reliever with a pretty good track record who appears to have the inside track to a closer role in Colorado. But I have not seen a confirmation that Alex Colomay is, in fact, the closer in Colorado is it just something that we can safely assume, or you know what's what's your approach here? Is he a viable third closer, even with all the concerns that come with Coors Field? Because compared to some of the other options they have used for saves in recent years, I do think Colomay's pre twenty twenty one skills are more interesting than a lot of those alternatives they've had to use. Yeah, I think that's a really safe uh, safe thing to say. So I'm, I'm presuming that Colome is the closer here. It, it, yeah, this is not a deep bullpen, so it's not a, a situation where you would look at that and say that they're bringing somebody of the caliber of Colome to give them different options and mix and match or you know, give them more depth in like the seventh inning. That just doesn't look like this, this kind of situation. So I would presume that if he's not the sole closer, he's certainly the primary one in Colorado. But not a really exciting option. So I think DVR, the way that you frame that is exactly right. RP3, that's that that's per- perfectly appropriate, even if he's not the sole closer there. But if he were the sole closer, I'm not sure I would elevate him to RP2. Yeah, I mean, you think back to past seasons in which we've had a Colorado closer do well. Uh, off the top of your head, since 2010, have there been any Colorado closers you've been excited to roster? Not that I can think of. I'm sure I'm probably forgetting somebody. Maybe excited if, if I'm really going to be literal <laughs> about that term. That I think I can comfortably say, yeah, there's there's been nobody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Wade Davis in 2018, 43 saves that year, 413 ERA. I think I'm willing to take that on for a, a cheap closer. Second or third source of saves. Hopefully third source, if we're talking about column A. Lower K rate than Davis, so definitely more risk. Contact in Colorado is very risky. It can go right. Greg Holland actually reeled off 41 saves for the Rockies in 2017 with a 361 ERA. That was with worse control than column A, but again, a higher strikeout rate. Maybe we're hoping for a Raphael Betancourt type season. 2012 Raphael Betancourt, 8.9 Ks per nine, just under two walks per nine. Did a good job keeping the ball in the park. How about a 281 ERA with 31 saves that year? So it's it's possible. I'm not 
not saying it's a good idea. I'm saying <laughs> you could throw worse reliever darts in terms of not getting any saves. And there's a very good chance that Colome is just the guy. And if they do opt to go for the committee, it'd be very difficult for them to pull that off without Colome being at least a half share of the committee. So uh, I took the chance on him in Tout Wars. I, I I definitely kind of punted uh, reliever resources because I have such a offensive heavy roster build there. We'll see if it actually works out. Yeah, the Joe Barlow, Alex Colome for $5 combined gambit. How many saves will I get out of that combination? I can't wait to find out. How about... <laughs> Robert Suarez in San Diego, up about 50 picks. I think people are gravitating toward him as the closer. Really good control during his time in Japan. They've had success with Pierce Johnson coming over from uh, NPB and being a, a very prominent part of their bullpen. They kind of worked with Pierce Johnson as more of a low-leverage guy that eventually took on more responsibilities, though. So I've been holding off on on Robert Suarez so far. I've been... Taking chances on Luis Garcia, who they brought in from the Cardinals, as my preferred option to emerge with that job. I think because of the Melanson addition last draft season, we're all hoping they land on one closer again. What has changed for you as far as your interest level in this bullpen, and who are you targeting? Well, nothing has really changed, and so I'm surprised that uh, Suarez is going up as much as he has. I have to wonder, we talked about this a little bit, before uh, starting to record, but it almost makes me wonder if maybe someone or some ones uh, are are touting him, and uh, you know, there's there's a bit of popularity building that way. But I've avoided the situation, which is really frustrating because really any one of the the six closers who are listed as potential co closers on roster resource any one of them would be somebody I would be really happy to target if I knew they had the job but that's that's pretty uh yeah it's pretty wild that you look at the death chart on roster resource they've got an eight man projected bullpen and six are listed at closer yeah I mean I think Robert Suarez still outside the top 300 overall if you're looking at drafts from the last three days so it's still not that much of a commitment if you like him. Drew Pomeranz is hurt again. I, from a skills perspective, I like Pomeranz a lot if he ever gets healthy, but I'm just worried that that's not, not going to happen. Pierce Johnson goes about 50 picks later than Robert Suarez, so you get a little bit of a discount if you want to go that route. I've had people asking if Denelson Lamette might be a closer. I mean, I guess that's always possible, but I, I think as time has passed, Al, like one thing I used to wonder about was whether being in a relief role actually protected pitchers from possible arm injuries. And I think the more we've learned about sitting at or near your max velocity, I think we've learned that that's probably as likely to hurt a pitcher as volume, right? So if if Lamette's out there throwing 98 out of the bullpen, that might create just as much of a, of a health risk for him as throwing 95 in a multi-inning role or as a starter. So I, I just don't know how much that can really be part of the calculus for me anymore. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And when you're looking at his chances versus the the pitchers that you've mentioned and also uh, Emilio Pagan, who if I if I were to take a, a late chance on somebody, it would actually be him just because he has the experience and he's in a, a good spot there uh, in, in San Diego and in Petco Park to shield them from the one thing that really could hurt them, which is a lot of fly balls. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's certainly no reason for the, the Padres to lean heavily on, on Lamette. Um, although he can throw that hard in, in any role, obviously that he gets in the bullpen, but no reason to, to bank on him for saves. Yeah. Luis Garcia and Emilio Pagan almost at the back of the top 500 overall. So you're talking about your last pick in a 15 team league might be easier to just take a chance on them without the, Without the clarity of how the roles are supposed to work, that way it's a very easy drop at the beginning of the season if you end up guessing wrong or if you're not on the same page uh, as the Padres front office with how they want to manage that bullpen. You say Kikuchi up about 40 spots from February to March as well. It's amazing what the uh, the work of Pete Walker with Robbie Ray will do to a pitcher's stock when a pitcher goes to Toronto now. I suppose. I mean, I think it's at least just a matter of him getting a job because we see that throughout this leaderboard, right? Just players getting into a situation where where we know what their their role is going to be. I mean, I don't think any of us were really worried about Kokuchi not being in a rotation somewhere, but I think it's just that certainty of knowing that that they have a job to start the season. 
Uh, I that's what I'm attributing that bump to. But yeah, maybe um, maybe Pete Walker is getting some well deserved credit there. I and maybe I'm I'm projecting here to DVR because even with Walker's good track record with Robbie Ray, that move to Toronto does <laughs> it does concern me. It concerns me for Kevin Gosman. It concerns me uh, for Yusei Kikuchi. So. Uh, maybe I'm being overly pessimistic, but uh, for, for that reason, I I do not have Gosman yet, and I may not wind up with Kikuchi. I'm fine with Kikuchi where he's been going the last three days, sitting around pick 270. That increase seems very reasonable. I think it's cheap strikeouts at a minimum. I think when you draft a pitcher in that range, you don't necessarily have to use them for every matchup, which is part of the concern you have with anybody in the AL East. So I'm in at the currently increased price. If we'd start jumping him 30 or 40 more picks, if he's a top 225 guy, then I think I see more pitchers in that range that I have more confidence in by comparison. But I think Kikuchi absolutely fits in where he's going right now. You see him next to names like Aaron Savale, Casey Mize, Kyle Hendricks. There's some guys in this group that I I like, plenty of guys in this group that I like, but I just think it, it sort of makes sense to me. This grouping seems very reasonable in terms of our expectations and the range of outcomes. Christian Javier sitting right there too, thanks to a recent bump. And I think Health concerns in the Astros rotation are definitely fair, and Zach Greinke going to Kansas City as a free agent also takes away you know one potential bulk source of innings for that rotation as well. We've seen what Javier can do kind of in a swing role before. Uh, even if he ends up back in a swing role, if you have to draft him inside the top 300 overall, are you doing it knowing that it might be a dozen starts and the rest of those those rest of those innings coming in a, a multi-inning relief role this season. Well, I know I say this when we talk about a lot of the the pitchers that go in this ADP range, but it, I, I do think it's with, with something like Javier, it's worth repeating that these are pitchers that you are probably churning through in, in any event. So whether it's a, a, an unwanted role change or an injury or disappointing performance, uh, you know, this is where it makes sense to take a, a risk on somebody who maybe if everything breaks right, that they do get a full season worth of starts. And uh, certainly based on what we saw from Javier last season and how well he pitched, uh, I, I think that this is a great place to take him. There have been some control issues for him in the past. When we saw him at AAA very briefly in 2019, and when he debuted in 2020, the walk rate was actually as good as it had been since rookie ball. Last season in that split role, he jumped up to a 12.5% walk rate. Plenty of Ks to go along with it. I think if he's going to be successful as a starter, the walk rate has to come down or the home run rate has to come down. I would say the latter is maybe less likely than the former. I think the home run rate, because we've seen him keep the ball in the park almost everywhere he's been prior to the big leagues, I have a little more hope that the the baseline home run rate for Christian Javier is actually going to be a bit better than what we've seen for his first 155 big league innings. So I, he's also part of that cluster of pitchers that I, I tend to like in the back of the top 300. I think there's a few other names there that I'd be more likely to draft those straight up. Luis Patino is a guy that I like just a little bit more than Javier. Andrew Heaney, I like a little bit more than Javier. Drew Rasmussen versus Javier seems pretty fair to me because I think they both bring some questions about their volume, but both could be used in a way that kind of optimizes their value. What an interesting choice that you have there, because with Rasmussen, you have somebody who who isn't missing nearly as many bats, but has managed contact really well. And then you've got uh, Javier, who last year had a 13.1% strikeout rate. But yeah, lots of fly balls, a, a, a pretty, I want to say a, a ghastly barrel rate, but 9.8%. With that many fly balls, you, you don't really want to see that much hard contact. But I, I can live with it when you've got a pitcher that is not only missing bats at a really high rate, but the the zone contact rate for Javier last year, 79.5%. Anything in the low 80s is really very good. So that's that's outstanding. And I think when a guy can miss bats in the zone like that, it does give you that glimmer of hope that maybe the walk rate will come down. Maybe the location strategy will be, hey, just throw it in the zone. Guys can't hit it. You don't have to walk guys. You don't have to nibble. You don't have to try to get guys to chase outside the zone when they can't hit your stuff very well inside the zone. Corey Kluber creeping up near that range too, about a 20-pick jump for him. Not really sure if there's any particular reason for that other than more research being done and, and seeing Kluber as a guy that the Rays could maybe take and, and turn into a, a right-handed version of Rich Hill. I mean, if you just lean really heavily on your best pitch, like that could 
that could change the the shape of what Kluber does. I, I wonder if we're well past the point in his career where he can be a workhorse. I mean, we've seen the big injury in 2019, only one inning in, in the shortened season in 2020, 80 innings last year during his lone season with the Yankees. Where do you fall on Kluber, and, and just how much of a workload do you think the Rays are going to be willing to put on his arm? Yeah, I imagine that they will will be very careful uh, with Kluber. So I would I wouldn't expect more than 140 innings, especially given that he he tossed 80 last season. That's that's a pretty big jump right there. So I, to me, 140 is the is the outer bound of what I would expect, and and I think in a way that. We should hope that uh, they limit him to that that many or, or maybe even less because I think that that will enhance Kluber's effectiveness. And you know, if he can put up numbers fairly similar to what he did with the Yankees, uh, you'll, you'll be happy with where he's going. I'm looking at the starters in this range just inside the top 300. You've got Jesus Lazardo, You've got Tony Gonsolin. You've got Zach Grinke, and you got Kluber. I mean, Grinke and Kluber, just two old pitchers, I think is a, a fair sort of toss-up. If you're interested in one, there's probably a decent chance you're interested in the other. So it's kind of a choice of, do you want the the old veteran that might be still better than people realize, or do you want the, the younger pitcher trying to break into a larger role? I would say of those four, I'm actually more inclined to take Kluber than the others. I think Lizardo I've been interested in for a long time. I hope he can get back on track in Miami, but I just think he's he's always had that raw talent and still hasn't been able to unlock it. So I I I don't want to wish cast too much on him when I see guys that I think even in more limited roles could be more valuable. Car- Carlos Rodon jumped up a bit, about 20 picks, not a surprise. He lands in San Francisco. I mean, a pitcher-friendly ballpark. As that price continues to rise perhaps even more, the only thing I'm worried about is his injury. If he's healthy, I think he's really good. He's now sitting just outside the top 100 overall, a few spots behind Charlie Morton, uh, just behind Hugh Darvish, a little bit behind guys like Trevor Rogers and Alec Manoa. With main event drafts coming up this weekend, I think we're going to see some People go out and get their guys, so to speak. And we, I, I would not be surprised if Rodon jumped up closer to where you know, Kevin Gossman and, and Joe Musgrove and some of those guys go more like the back of the top 75 because the more you drill into how Carlos Rodon did it last year, the more impressed you are. And it just becomes the, the game of chicken with when you can get him and how many innings you're expecting. Yeah, uh, yeah. It it makes me sad in a way that he's his ADP is rising because it, it makes it less and less likely that I'll be able to draft him this year. Uh, but you look at, at where he's being drafted, and right now just behind Charlie Morton, and I'm I'm going to be going with Morton every single time because I don't have a doubt about the innings, even if the ceiling is lower than what Rodon showed us last year. Rodon's actually going a little bit ahead of Luis Castillo. And I, I don't see Castillo as having the, the same helium. And yet I think Castillo could really be a very pleasant surprise this year. Um, because I think what we saw in the second half from him is more indicative than what we're likely to see uh, in the first half when he struggled so much last year. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a tough, Redon's a tough player to pass on, but he's going in a, in a part of the draft where there's there's definitely safer options. May have read this before on this show, on Rates and Barrels, or somewhere, but the five-year injury log on Carlos Rodon, it, as the price goes up, this is why I'm not interested, even though he could be he could be completely fine at pick 75. He could be good enough, he could be better than a pick 75 pitcher. Like that's the that's the ceiling. The problem is the injury history. Bursitis in his left biceps, left shoulder inflammation, that was in 2017, surgery on the left shoulder in 2018. Left elbow inflammation in 2019, a sore left shoulder in 2020, and even a brief bout of left shoulder fatigue in 2021. I mean, he's missed 50 days or more in four of the last five seasons. And I think the contract he got with San Francisco, like I'm happy for him as a person who's fought through this and had pitched really well last year. I wish for his sake he'd been able to get even more. I just think that a two-year deal for a guy that has like frontline stuff is pretty indicative of how concerned everybody was about the possibility of him breaking down. I think San Francisco taking that chance, clearly they see that as an undervalued sort of, of player. They did it with Alex Cobb. 
They, Logan Webb has high injury risk. He's an internal guy, of course, but they they have loaded up. I mean, even Carlos Martinez, they got an NRI. Like they are embracing injury risk in San Francisco. And while they're doing it and getting a discount, if his price keeps going up in drafts, it's just very difficult to to get on board. I feel like your your window to get him was when he was a free agent, when there was more uncertainty, because the health risk has not changed with the move. It's still there, even though he landed in a good spot. What's interesting to me is that he is still going 20 picks behind Justin Verlander, <laughs> which, I, you know, if Verlander, Verlander were to fall, I probably would go with Rodon, even though Verlander's throwing hard, looking good in, in his initial uh, outing in spring training. Uh, you know, there's there's still a risk there coming back from Tommy John. So uh, for for that spot in the draft, I think I actually would rather take the chance on Rodon. Now I'm on Verlander. If they're even up price wise, I I have an irrational level of confidence in Justin Verlander coming back. That I think is for, there were people that I think that were on board with that even before we saw him this spring. But I think with the, the way he looked very early on, as those reports keep coming in, if he keeps throwing 95 in his spring starts, he's going to creep up a little bit as well. Clayton Kershaw. Now that he's back at the Dodgers, up a little bit. We've talked a lot about him on the pods. I, it's it, it's not. To me, it's not totally unlike the Rodon risk. I think it's a more recent problem that caused them to miss more time. So it's reflected in the price. He's discounted a lot more than Rodon is, but I wouldn't say that their innings expectations for me are all that different. Yeah, no, I, that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, given the the health issues that, that Kershaw went through last year. Still think he's being a little bit underdrafted, though. Nick Pavetta and Matt Barnes both up. Not really sure why exactly uh still some uncertainty with that Boston bullpen and, and Pavetta was you know fine in the role they used him in last year but I just don't know what about his offseason would make you want to move him up boards right now so that one struck me as just a little bit odd yeah I have no explanation for that whatsoever um not not a hit that doesn't even sound like a case of somebody getting uh hype from from one outlet or another and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's go to some fallers, both hitters and pitchers all mixed together. We're spending less time on the fallers because the analysis oftentimes is he's hurt now. Uh, At the very bottom, in terms of biggest fallers, Lance McCullers Jr., He's down about 75 picks from where he was going in February. Uh, it's it's an arm injury, and I think the last thing I saw from Dusty Baker was that Dusty hopes that he will pitch this season. Like that's that just feels so ominous, right? Like even though it's a it's not a he's out for the year sort of news item. It's just it gives you an idea that the timetable for McCullers' recovery is going to be a very lengthy one. So he's just off my board at this point. I mean, if you're in a multi-year league and get really deep benches you want to draft him now and stash him away fine I think you can go do that but 
unfortunate because when he's healthy, you know, I think he fully deserved to be going where he was going beginning a draft season in that kind of pick 125 to 130 range. Adbert Alzali, who I really liked, he's down. He's on the 60-day IL, too, if I remember correctly. So yeah. it's going to be probably half a season at least before we see him back once he goes through rehab and, and gets that gets that path back into the Cubs rotation. Alex Reyes is a big faller. Uh, he's off the board just like Alzali is at this point. I just I have no sense for when he's going to come back. I think the history of shoulder issues for Reyes makes that even more complicated. Uh, of course, Jack Flaherty is a big faller. I don't know, as good as Jack Flaherty is, Al, I find that in leagues that don't have IL spots especially, I can't wait six weeks for a player. I can't subject myself to that on draft day and and sit there and basically burn a roster spot hoping that he comes back, is healthy, and is himself. Like that's a, It's a lot of, of wishing. Yeah, and given the situation and the injury too, that it's it's another shoulder issue for Flaherty, uh, which was what he dealt with uh, late last season. So yeah, I have to admit, as somebody who I think pretty recently on this show was saying that I thought that Flaherty was going maybe a little too late, I'm now pretty much scared to death of drafting him. Yeah, so he's probably just a, a do not draft for me at this point. Kyle Lewis has slid a little bit, and I think this one is one where I think the injury news might be leading to an overcorrection. I think the way the Mariners are built, at least for now, Kyle Lewis plays a lot because Julio Rodriguez isn't up. The problem, though, is that if if he's going to miss opening day, Lewis goes late enough where I don't know if I want to wait two or three weeks for him. It's just it's it's not the same kind of timetable we're talking about with some of these injured pitchers, but you got to play short for a couple of weeks, and I kind of think he's just on that borderline anyway of how firmly would he have a roster spot for you in a 12-team league or a 15-team league. If we went through the first couple weeks of the season and he were healthy and they were mixing and matching a lot and trying to keep his legs healthy, if he were starting four out of every six games, would Kyle Lewis stay on your roster in a typical-sized mixed league? And I'm kind of waffling on it to the point where I guess that means I don't want him now, but I want to flag him as a watch list player in leagues where he goes undrafted because I think they want to see what he can bring to the table. And with that improved lineup around him, I think there's a chance we see something even better than what we were seeing on a per game basis from him back in 2020. Yeah, well, this brings us full circle to your first question about how we use ADP because Kyle Lewis really hasn't been getting drafted in 12-teamers. So I I completely agree with your assessment, but when you look at how the community is valuing Kyle Lewis, you could say, okay, I just need to watch really closely how how his recovery develops and what the Mariners' plans are going to be because – He's going to be available there in 12-teamers, and he's somebody who uh, could definitely make an impact in that depth of a league. Yeah, so definitely keep an eye on him. Do not forget about him. Could be a mid-April, late-April sort of pickup, even if he's not necessarily someone you're going to draft right now. Uh, Some drops for Pavin Smith, Yoshi Satsugo, and Eric Hosmer. Uh, Smith and Satsugo are first base and outfield eligible. Hosmer, of course, first base only. Not really sure what the Hosmer drop can be attributed to. Maybe it's the addition of Luke Voigt. People just saying it's out. He's not going to play every single day. They can at least finally sit him against lefties, which I think they've already started to do in the past anyway. But now the way they're built, it's just not going to be anything but a big side platoon role for him. But Satsugo... Like why would he drop? Like there, he he looks like a guy that the Pirates are going to play because he played really well once he got to Pittsburgh last year uh, at the level that I think many people expect him to play at when the Rays added him back in 2020. Yeah, that's a head scratcher to me too. I don't know how that could have been news driven. I haven't seen anything. Uh, nothing with the the Pirates in general. I mean, the Pirates are what the Pirates are this year. So. Yeah, I just have to shrug my shoulders at that one and uh, be, I guess, glad that he's even uh, more more available than he was before. Lucas Sims dealing with elbow and back issues behind schedule appears to be headed to the IL to start the season. I don't know if that has been confirmed yet, but that's almost certainly where we're headed. Art Warren, is he the, the next option up for you in that Cincinnati bullpen? I think so. Uh, I don't know if they would go to him right away uh, on opening day, but then again, you look at the the bullpen and I'm not sure who would be a a more obvious choice than Art Warren. 
but I, I do think that Sims has been, you know, the, the injury news aside for him, that he's been going a little bit late because I think people just see him as, as keeping the seat warm for Art Warren. And I think Sims is good enough that whenever he returns, that he can just um, just hold that role really for as long as uh, the, the Reds keep him. Being in teardown mode, maybe that's not going to be all season long. But what I, I would foresee is that uh, they would go with a, a committee situation and that um, Sims would just slide right right into that role when, when he was ready. Yeah, I, I still like Sims for later. I don't know if I'm drafting him in 12 and 15 team mixed leagues waiting for him to come back. I think he's more of a, a early season fab pickup if he gets back to full health because I do think he has got a prominent role for the Reds. Nick Madrigal has slipped a little bit. Not sure why. I have no explanation for that. His playing time should be pretty safe as the everyday second baseman. For the Cubs, I think there are some questions about how much he's going to run coming off of, of hamstring surgery, at least early in the season. So that would be the only sort of lingering question I have about him. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's not the sort of thing that you think that would be driving his ADP down all of a sudden. So my guess is maybe think that he loses uh, people think he loses some playing time to Jonathan VR. That's really the only the only explanation that makes any sense to me. Yeah, I've seen Craig Kimbrell dropping a bit because the further we go uh, through the post-lockout part of the transactions that are happening, and the longer we go without him being traded somewhere else, the harder it is to justify taking him, right? If he stays with the White Sox, it's probably not a share with Liam Hendricks. It's probably Craig Kimbrell just being part of the bridge to Liam Hendricks. So I'm curious if the price falls enough before opening day, if there's actually a little buying opportunity on Kimbrell that we should take advantage of, because we've seen trades happen the night before opening day in the past. I think when he was traded to San Diego, a few years back that happened during the Sunday night opener. Yeah. So it, I don't think you can rule it out. I think if a team lost a, a closer or a, any sort of high leverage reliever and just felt the pressure to go out and, and bolster their bullpen last minute, there's going to be a point where he's the best available option. And I think the white Sox, perhaps because they've got so much bullpen depth already around him might be pretty quick to just move away from that money, free up that salary to then go get something else later on this season. They're going to want to, upgrade the roster I would imagine in July because even if there's more pressure on them in the AL Central they still are going to almost certainly be a playoff team here in 2022 yeah well uh I I do think that now that Kimbrel's ADP has dropped enough that I'm a lot more interested in him because that that skill set is going to play somewhere uh now Tony LaRussa recently did make a comment to reporters that he expects Kimbrell to be on the opening day roster, but I'm sure if the right opportunity presents itself to the White Sox that uh, he'll be on a different team uh, come opening day. Uh, I'm not saying that will happen. I'm just saying that I I wouldn't be shocked by it. So uh, given that Kimbrell's going now more towards the latter part of drafts, uh, it's given how quickly the, the closer cohort um, thins out, I think he is absolutely a risk worth taking at, uh, at his current ADP. An effective attempt to uh, recoup some of the lost leverage of, of waiting too long, perhaps, to to move Craig Kimbrell. <laughs> adding Joe Kelly, adding Kendall Graveman to the bullpen probably didn't help their cause as far as uh, convincing teams that they you know, weren't looking to unload Craig Kimbrell. J.P. Crawford has slipped a little bit. Not really sure what to make of that. He should play every day. I think maybe it's lineup position, though, that could suffer as that lineup gets better with Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker there. Crawford might end up at the bottom third of the order instead of being a table setter. Perhaps. Yeah, it definitely seems like a major overcorrection. I'm not even sure a correction was needed in the first place. Although, obviously, batting at or near the top of the order is the the biggest part of Crawford's fantasy appeal. But I'm not even sure that we can assume that he's, he's going to move down. He's still one of the profiles as one of the better players on the roster to, to fill that spot got one last item to get to because I just saw some news scroll by on Twitter. Gavin Lux, the last of the fallers to discuss, and they're getting more crowded. He he seemed like the biggest loser with the addition of Freddie Freeman because of the way everyone mixes and matches. Max Muncy's health trending in the right direction. like That, that all makes sense to me. Kevin Pillar was just added by the Dodgers, too. So now they've got another guy that can play in the outfield, and maybe that pushes Chris Taylor more into the second base mix, which I think is just one more path for Lux. So just a couple days ago, I think it was on Sunday when I was talking to Dino on Rates and Barrels, or no, it was on the Telt Wars live stream on Sunday morning. 
I said Gavin Lux is basically the backup at every position other than catcher because if anyone gets hurt, someone else can cover any position he can't play and he'll just play the open spot. Now that's not necessarily as true, at least with Kevin Pillar in the mix. I think that's one upgrade to the bench that can help take some of that playing time away. We saw Lux playing some center field at the end of last season. That seems less likely with a guy like Pilar as part of that bench now. Yeah, and I agree. It doesn't look good for him in terms of playing time and you know, notwithstanding what I said about the Dodgers finding seemingly finding playing time for everybody. Uh, there there are limits to that. So I, I do think that that's a, that's a big hit to Lux's value. And we have uh, Zach Davies landing in Arizona too. So all sorts of breaking news on this Tuesday morning. I think it's innings eater, you know, NL only mostly. I don't know if you want Zach Davies on your roster permanently in a mixed league. Maybe the kind of guy that for two favorable home starts or the occasional streaming opportunity, he will make some sense this year. But uh, yeah, not much of an impact starter at this stage of his career. We are going to go, before we go, if you made it this far, thank you for listening to the entire episode. Uh, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for just $1 a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMelkyOrBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you enjoy the show on a platform that allows you to rate us and review us, we'd really appreciate that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you're able to do that. Thanks again for listening. Under the Radar is back with you on Friday. 